This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Ed Laskowski, a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation and sports medicine at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. The evaluation and treatment of scoliosis is an area that has created some controversy over the years. Should we be screening kids in school? When do we brace kids with scoliosis? And what are the indications for surgery? To help us answer these questions and more, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Tony Stans. Dr. Stans is a consultant in the Division of Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery with a special interest in the treatment of spinal deformity. He is past chair of the Mayo Clinic Division of Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery and past surgeon-in-chief for the Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Thanks for joining us today, Tony, to give us clarity on this topic. Thank you very much, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Tony, one question I, I always hear from colleagues and parents alike is regarding screening. Is screening helpful and necessary? And, and if so, at what age, how often, and who should do it? Great question, Ed. So Minnesota had been an area where school screening was done in many public schools for many years. When we studied that question here in Olmsted County, our results were a little surprising in that screening done by nurses in the school system wasn't very accurate. We learned that there were a number of patients who truly had scoliosis who ended up coming to see us within six months or so that had their curvature missed on school screening. And then we were getting sent many patients that were thought to have scoliosis, but in fact did not. And so many children were getting pulled out of school to come to a physician's visit to get a scoliosis x-ray, which involves some radiation when in fact they didn't have any curvature. Uh, I believe at least in Olmsted County, school screening has been discontinued, but people have felt somewhat passionate about that as well. And so there's not a unanimous agreement about that. And uh, certainly I really believe in preventative care whenever possible. But when you really kind of look at the statistics, it's not clear that school screening is very helpful. So to get back to your question, I think that you know, the best person probably to do screening would be primary care providers at their annual well child visits or say for sports medicine physicals. Mm. And the age that screening would be most helpful is probably around age 10 or so. About 85% of scoliosis has its onset in children over age 10. Certainly reasonable to consider in younger kids, but from age 10 to we'll say 14, 15, uh, would be probably the optimal age to screen for children, likely at a you know, primary care provider exam. Should that be done every year then, Tony, after age 10? Say if, if, if there's a negative screen per se, or, or what are the criteria for rescreening? I would guess I would say at every primary care visit, uh, I mean, sorry, it just occurred to me that, you know, maybe the child is going to see their primary care provider four times this year. Well, but, you know, they don't need to be screened four times a year, but probably once a year, as you suggest. So if, you know, if, if kids are getting an annual sports exam or whatever, that would be sufficient, I think. I don't, screening has not been a very accurate way of monitoring scoliosis. So we will see a number of kids in clinic who sometimes are referred to us with rather large curves. And they've mentioned, oh, their primary care provider has been monitoring it via physical exam. And in fact, the curve has actually gotten worse. Tony, when should children be referred to orthopedics for scoliosis? When should we be concerned enough to refer? 
Sure. I would say first, you know, whenever a primary care provider has a, a sincere concern, they should feel free to refer the patient. It depends a little bit on your practice setting and level of expertise. But if you see that child with significant paraspinous asymmetry and you'd like to get a radiograph, then ordering a scoliosis radiograph is absolutely reasonable and appropriate. Certainly, if the radiograph is read by a radiologist and they've documented curve magnitude of greater than 20 degrees, that certainly would be a patient that would benefit from being referred to a pediatric orthopedist or, or an orthopedic surgeon who cares for children with scoliosis. Because it's at about 25 degrees that we initiate brace treatment. So if you get that radiograph and the report says the curve is 12 degrees or 13 degrees, probably that patient doesn't need to, to come to ortho. And again, it depends on the comfort level of the provider. If they feel okay about seeing the patient themselves in a year and you know, want to schedule a scoliosis x-ray with that annual vision, I think that's fine. But once the curve hits 20 degrees, that is absolutely a reasonable indication to refer the patient to an orthopedic surgeon who cares for kids with uh, scoliosis. Perfect. Thank you. You mentioned that there is no real optimally sensitive t clinical test for scoliosis, right. but for the initial screen, you know, so we're not x-raying everyone, what, yep. what is the most accurate clinical exam that you find? Right. So it's been referred to as the Adams forward bend test, of course, described by Dr. Adams. And you have the patient stand. And the, and the first thing I do is, you know, assess their limb links by feeling the top of their pelvis. Assessing limb links with patients lying down is notoriously inaccurate. So if you just have the patient stand up in front of you with feet flat on the floor, knees straight, and see if their pelvis is level. If they have a significant leg length discrepancy, that can cause a curvature in their back. And, and that should be referred. But assuming their pelvis is level, I lift up their t-shirt so I can see at least to the level of the scapula, the shoulder blades, and then have them bend forward. And I usually have them start by just touching their knees. And then I ask them to relax just to let their arms and head and neck dangle forward. And that allows you to see the thoracic spine pretty clearly. And there is a little measuring device, which I wouldn't expect, a, again, a primary care provider to have in their office, but it's like a Siemens level. It's called a scoliometer. And when that scoliometer measures a seven degree tilt or more, that's been associated with curves that are greater than 15 or 20 degrees. Again, not having that Siemens level, eyeballing it. And if you see that right, it's, and it's usually the apex to the right, if you see a rib prominence that's a centimeter, half an inch higher on one side than the other, then that would be you know, reason to get a radiograph or a referral. Then I have patients bend all the way forward as far as they can go. And that allows us to see the lumbar spine better. And again, if you see that significant asymmetry, lumbar spine asymmetry, it's usually more prominent on the left side than get that x-ray or make the referral. Excellent. Thank you. That was well described, Tony. You mentioned bracing and when is bracing appropriate? And, and is there an optimal type of brace now that's being used? Right. Bracing has been shown with very good medical evidence that it can change the natural history of scoliosis. It's very rare in scoliosis to do randomized prospective studies. But now about eight years ago, there was a multi-center randomized prospective study comparing brace treatment and no treatment done at multiple uh, centers across the U.S. And it showed uh, very clearly that children that wore a, a brace, and, and I'll get to this in a second, but a brace made by an orthotist who is experienced at making scoliosis braces, that those children, without a doubt, were much less likely to have progression of their curvature. So one, bracing works. Second, what type of brace? Boy, again, if you go on Google, you know, scoliosis brace, 
you'll get 2 million or more hits. And there are several different types of braces that are used at different centers. One of the most common has been called a Boston brace or what I would call is a custom corrective TLSO brace or thoracal lumbar sacral orthosis. It's a kind of a firm plastic brace. You wear a lightweight garment underneath it. You can wear t-shirt clothes over the top of it. So I have kids coming into my office now in July in short pants and a t-shirt, and I can't tell that they're wearing a brace. Hmm. Probably the most important thing is that the brace is made by an orthotist who has experience and expertise in making scoliosis braces. Yeah. So in that study I referenced, that was a multi-center study done at many areas across the U.S., but they had one thing in common that, you know, the orthotists were making a lot of scoliosis braces. Here at Mayo a number of years ago, we compared the effectiveness of braces made by, again, a kind of a scoliosis brace specialist and some who did it just on occasion. And, and as expected, the braces made by someone with special interest and expertise in scoliosis braces were more effective. I wouldn't you know, buy your scoliosis brace on the internet. You can look, and I won't mention names, but on the internet and there, you know, on one webpage, there's a ballerina in a brace that has a variety of different straps. And uh, those kinds of braces, as appealing as they might be, are not supported by any medical evidence to show that they can be helpful. So it, you know, the brace should be provided by a qualified, experienced orthotist. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we talked about bracing and are there non-surgical options in treatment for scoliosis? Like is physical therapy evidence-based to be effective? <laughs> How about chiropractic treatment? Right. So uh, for physical therapy, there's been kind of a renewed interest in that. There's a therapy technique called the Schroth method and a number of different scoliosis centers are offering that therapy provided by therapists who are trained in this technique. I know the therapists doing it are very well-intentioned. They're not trying to sell snake oil, for example, and the exercises and stretches promoted by the Schroth therapy are good. You know, they're promoting strengthening, posture, et cetera. But, but there still isn't that study that shows that it can actually change the natural history of scoliosis. You know, a group of Schroth patients compared to a similar group of patients that had no treatment and then showing that Schroth helps, that study hasn't existed. Our recommendation, and one of my partners went up and visited you know, a Schroth treatment center, is that that's fine. If families would like to pursue that, we would certainly support that, but don't give up your brace. Don't throw away your brace and do both. And the Schroth therapy may help with posture, strength, flexibility, et cetera, which are all good things. And bracing, we know, can help prevent the curve from getting worse. Chiropractic care, again, uh, no medical evidence, to my knowledge, showing that it's effective. And many patients ask about that. And I tell them, I sincerely want to learn anything I can that would help patients with scoliosis. And if so, if your chiropractor has a journal article that describes a technique that has been shown with good evidence to be helpful, I would be absolutely open to considering that. And, and as of yet, I haven't gotten an article back. Again, I just don't think there's any evidence that chiropractic care can change spinal curvature. I, I think mm -hmm. it can help patients with low back pain, for example, but not with scoliosis. Mm -hmm. Tony, when we have the child in the brace, is there, are there things they do out of the brace too, just to maintain motion and flexibility? Yeah, so we generally don't prescribe a specific therapy program. We do encourage patients to be 
as active in all extracurricular activities that they'd like to do that. I mean, our one general rule is that patients don't have to give up any activity just because they're being braced with scoliosis. There was a, another very good study where patients wore a very accurate temperature sensor inside their brace that could very accurately document how many hours a day they were wearing the brace. And we learned that the more you wear the brace, the better it works. That a, really a minimum of 12 hours out of 24 hours was necessary. And that after that, it was like a straight line improvement. The more you wore the brace, the better it worked. Our general recommendation, average recommendation here, is to try to wear the brace 20 hours a day. Mm. And for most patients, that means they take it off after school. So they may be out of the brace from 4 until 8 p.m. And during that time, they do their extracurricular activities. They have dinner, you know, shower, whatever, put the brace on before they go to bed and wear it to school the next day. Now, if, you know, that patient has a traveling volleyball tournament on Saturday and they're going to have, you know, five games and it would be totally impractical, uh, impossible to wear the brace 20 hours that day, that's okay. You know, I, I think we've all agreed that patients you know, their physical and mental health benefit from that extracurricular team sports activity. And they are short a couple of hours on a day here or there. That's not going to affect the long-term outcome of their brace treatment. Mm -hmm. But night wearing is important, Tony. They should wear it at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I tell patients that's eight free hours. You know, once you become comfortable uh, sleeping in a brace, that's like banking eight hours. That doesn't matter to you if you're asleep. In fact, I mean, it's during the nighttime that you're weightless. I mean, you're lying supine, so you don't have the weight of gravity pushing on your brace. And the brace may actually be a little bit more effective at correcting the curvature at nighttime. Hmm. There are a couple of specialized nighttime, one called a Charleston nighttime bending brace. And that's really for a particular curve type in the lower back. If you have two curves, while it might be helping one curve, it's making the other one worse. So it has fairly limited indications. But that's a brace that's worn only at night. To get your point, I mean, nighttime brace wear is helpful. Once the patients are able to sleep in their brace, they're like the easiest hours out of the day to wear it. That's a great point. A great point. Well, a lot of our, our patients and parents especially ask us, what causes scoliosis? Tens of millions of dollars have been spent on research trying to answer that question. And uh, it turns out there's no simple answer. For regular old garden variety adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, we know that there is a genetic component. So, for example, in the general population, the likelihood of developing a curvature that measures greater than 50 degrees is about one in a thousand. But if you have a first degree relative, brother, sister, sibling, parent, the risk is one in 50. Mm. So it's 20 times higher than the general mm. population but it's still only one in 50. It's not 50% or 25% even. And there've been a number of studies that have looked at, tried to find genetic markers or causes, and really it's been unsuccessful. We know it's 10 times more common in women than men. Why exactly, we don't know. Some people have suggested, well, women are more flexible, hard to know. I think at some point it becomes kind of a biomechanical problem that we're not sure exactly what initiates it. Other research has suggested kind of postural, autonomic musculature or, or neural pathways that kind of short circuit a little bit. But, but at some point, once the curve reaches a certain size, it seems to take on a life of its own, especially in a growing patient. And having a lot of growth remaining 
is another big risk factor. So, I mean, the, the four main risk factors we talk to families about are family history, being female, having a lot of growth left, and having a big curve. Mm. Those are the four big risk factors. Mm. Any difference, Tony, between right and left curves? Is one more sinister than another, or do we do we need to yeah. worry about one more than another? Yep. 90% of the thoracic curves are apex to the right. And why would that be? I mean, you know, I, no one knows that, but why would a straight spine, why would it always go to the right? But that's actually a good sign of a routine curve. When we start seeing a curve to the left, then there is a higher association with some underlying spinal cord problem, you know, a cyst or syrinx in the spinal cord. There are other neurologic conditions, Chiari malformation, et cetera. And so that's a curve to the left in the thoracic spine is a red flag. And we do a very careful neurologic exam. And if there's any doubt, we get an MRI scan of the entire spine. In the lower spine, the thoracolumbar area, the curves are to the left. It's kind of the opposite. But anyway, apex left curve in the thoracic spine is a red flag. Great information. Well, after all that, Tony, when is surgery appropriate to consider? And when you do perform a procedure, what types of procedures are commonly performed? And maybe I'll first talk about our traditional scoliosis surgery. I almost hate to use the, the term traditional because it continues to evolve and it's mm -hmm. a very different operation that was initially practiced in the 70s. But for this more traditional approach, it's the use of rods. And now we primarily use pedicle screws and hooks to correct the deformity and then fuse that segment of the spine. And the implants allow us to correct the deformity and they immobilize it. And then the fusion is what gives the procedure uh, durability. And most scoliosis surgeons would agree, I think that curves greater than 50 degrees, surgical treatment is a very reasonable and appropriate option. The best long-term natural history studies that have been done suggest that adult patients with curves over 50 degrees those curves tend to get worse and they tend to have increasing problems later in life. And so by treating it as a 14 year old or a 15 year old, it can be treated much more effectively, much more safely. You prevent it from getting worse, you know, and that would be an optimal time to consider the more traditional surgery. It's hard in my mind to come up with a good indication to operate and doing our kind of a traditional posterior instrumentation fusion on a curve less than 40. That falls into the a group of patients that we would likely use brace treatment to prevent progression. And the natural history on those curves is less clear. And many patients seem to do just fine with curves under 40 degrees. And then between 40 and 50 degrees, it's really kind of dependent on individual patient circumstances. And you know, if you had a 12 year old who is premonarchal, very skeletally immature, has a 45 degree curve, big apex to the right, you know, really physically deforming, that would be a very reasonable patient, again, to consider surgical treatment. If you have an 18 year old with a 45 degree curve in the thoracic spine and a well-balanced 45 degree curve in the lumbar spine, and they are having no symptoms and you can't see a deformity and they're skeletally mature, that's one that would be very reasonable to monitor or observe. The new kid on the block, I guess I would say, are fusionless options. We don't have any long-term follow-up results on, but probably the most common and widely known procedure is called vertebral body tethering, where screws are placed in the vertebral bodies anteriorly. In the chest, they can do this thoracoscopically, so it's arguably less invasive. In the lumbar spine, they will do it through a series of smaller incisions. And then instead of connecting the screws with a rod, which is rigid, the screws are connected with a heavy nylon cord. 
And the theory then is that one, in young patients, the tether can guide growth. The screws are always placed on the convex side of the curve. So it would slow the growth on the convex side, allow the concave side to grow and actually help the spine grow straight. And then the other you know, theoretic advantage is that it's not fusing the spine. And so that segment of the spine maintains some mobility. And we've tested that here at Mayo, and, it, and it's actually true. When patients that have had spinal cord tethering have gotten what we call side-bending x-rays, they have shown that there really is some motion there. That the trouble is, that because it is a relatively new kit on the Brock, new procedure, we're still fine-tuning who would best benefit from it. And I guess related to that, it has a higher reoperation rate at this point. So one of the pioneers in the surgery at San Diego Rady Children's Hospital outstanding surgeon, honest investigator, at two years had a 50% reoperation rate. Hmm. Here at Mayo, and, and I don't do the procedure, I have two partners, we've decided to concentrate all the experience into my two partners, Drs. Larson and Milbrandt, and they've been doing it in a very careful, very specific set of indications, et cetera, inclusion criteria for who they offer this operation to. Our reoperation rate at two years has been 20%. For a more conventional, traditional scoliosis operation, when we looked up our results here at Mayo using techniques that were performed in the 70s and 80s, we had a 10% reoperation rate at 20 years. So the tethering is very appealing for a couple of reasons. And there are patients and families who, in their heart of hearts, believe it's the best option for their child. And I think you know we're continuing to fine-tune and better understand exactly who those patients are. But right now, it, you know, it's probably less reliable than our conventional, traditional posterior instrument infusion. Mm -hmm. How successful is surgical treatment, Tony? Do we find that people who, the, the surgery is successful, but do they have increased incidence later on of back pain, yep. back problems, degenerative change? Right. And so that's interesting. And what we really probably should be comparing then are patients who had surgery because of their severe scoliosis and patients who had severe scoliosis, but didn't have surgery, if that makes sense. And generally the only reason we're offering surgery to patients is because the risk of surgery and the risk of later degenerative arthritis is actually less than the risk if they have that severe curve untreated. Sure, you know, somebody who has a fusion or any type of scoliosis surgery low into their lumbar spine are gonna have some increased risk of low back pain and degenerative arthritis. But the best medical information we have suggests that their risk is going to be lower with surgery than it would have been had they been untreated and that large curve was allowed to continue to progress and worsen, et cetera. As a whole, I counsel patients that the surgery is essentially 95% successful at completely taking care of the problem for decades into the future. Again, I mentioned the reoperation rate from surgery done in the 70s and 80s was 10% at 20 years the surgery has been refined and is much more sophisticated now. We use interoperative computer navigation to place our pedicle screws. It's now more safe and effective. And again, I feel comfortable counseling families that you know it's 95% successful at essentially taking care of this problem for the foreseeable future. <laughs> One last thing, I mean, not, not to put a plug in for Mayo, but the other aspects of the care has also improved significantly. And so we have a, an anesthesia team who have optimized their anesthesia for us to do very accurate interoperative spinal cord monitoring. So the risk of neurologic 
injury or problem is much lower. We use intraoperative medications, tranexamic acid and other techniques, cell saver to minimize blood loss. It's now unusual that a patient would need a blood transfusion. Patients used to stay in the hospital a week or more, and now they're typically being discharged in three or four days. And it's not just at this center. There are other high volume scoliosis centers across the country are making these same changes. So it is a, a very, very different operation. And it's appropriate for a patient or parent to remember that their aunt or their grandmother had scoliosis surgery and what an arduous process it was. You know, thankfully, tremendous progress has been made to make it more safe, much less morbidity, and provides patients with a you know, much longer successful outcome. Yes, yes. Much different than the, the old days there. Right. Yep. <laughs> is, is there anything, you know, in those gray area curves, Tony, is there anything, you know, some people say, well, it's a rigid curve or it's a flexible curve. Is right. there any yep. way to assess that or is that, does that play into your decision making maybe in that, that gray area? Right. Yeah. So flexibility is always good. I mean, the more flexible something is, the better you can correct it. We get what we call side bending x-rays to assess the flexibility of a curve, but that's usually a preoperative test. We do assess flexibility in the office on physical exam. I would say that the more flexible a curve is, the straighter we know that we can get it, and the more inclined we are to observe it and maybe let it get a little bit bigger. But if it is a really rigid, stiff curve, and we know that the amount of correction we're gonna get is gonna be less than average, we'll just say, then we probably don't wanna let that curve become really big because ultimately the person's gonna be left with a, a bigger curve. Mm -hmm. That's excellent, Tony. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss about this topic? It's intriguing, the fact that still a hundred years of treatment and we still don't know what causes it. <laughs> and we're still trying to figure out how best to treat it. The main points would be that I, I do think that brace treatment can change the natural history of scoliosis. So therefore, I mean, part of the principles, I guess, and having a medical condition that you would screen for is that you have a, you know effective treatment you can offer patients. Most adolescents with curves that measure 25 or 30 degrees, which is when we start brace treatment, have no symptoms. And we do have an effective treatment. So screening those kids at primary care visits, I think is really important service that primary care providers can do for patients. I would be a little bit hesitant to pursue you know, the latest, greatest treatment that's being sold on the internet. I think for non-operative treatment, brace treatment is the gold standard and we know it works. And then, you know, heaven forbid, sometimes patients, because they're asymptomatic, their curves aren't identified until they're 50 degrees or so, but families shouldn't lose heart because we do have a very effective and safe treatment for those patients. It's a very intellectually interesting and clinically rewarding you know, condition to help take care of. Absolutely. Uh, that's fantastic information, Tony. I, I think, uh, you know, again, there, there is a lot out there that is non-evidence-based on right. the internet and a lot of entrepreneurship and right. try this, try that. So I really appreciate you giving us this fantastic clarity and evidence-based recommendations for this topic. It's, it's just wonderful. We have been talking about scoliosis with Dr. Tony Stans. Thanks so much for your time, Tony. Thanks, Ed. It's been a real pleasure. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Stay healthy and see you next week.